podcast 126, entitled Amberly Wildbrooks, one word. And the theme today is the theme of change in human existence and in our lives and in, uh, in everything around us. And it uh, was engendered by some thoughts recently that I've had about um, the uh, question of uh, long-term violence and warfare in the current world. And don't worry, this is by no means a statement of a particular partisan point of view, but it is a reflection, a very personal reflection, on change and how do we understand transiency and flux, to use the traditional philosophical expression, in our own lives and with those we love. What do we make of change? How do we accommodate ourselves to change? How do we uh, adopt a position of acquiescence rather than of opposition to change and yet still stand on a kind of grounded, enduring rock of substance? Because we do need this. You cannot live without a uh, sense of an anchor. Anchor and change. Well, let's think about change. And the um, uh, thing about the change uh, came in connection with uh, the single that I played at the start of the podcast, which is entitled Woodstock. You'll know the song. It became famous for most Americans through the version by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, or whatever their incarnation was at the time. And the song was written by Joni Mitchell. And uh, it's a beautiful song, and in some ways a religious song. The version I played you, though, in order for the lyrics to be a little uh, clearer and plainer, is the more soft rock version that uh, came out uh, just a year later in England, I think, where it, I think, became number one by a group called Matthew's Southern Comfort. And the line that I want to uh, focus on in that remarkable um, lyric is this, where she writes, I dreamed I saw the bombers flying shotgun in the sky, turning into butterflies above our nation. And I thought to myself, my gosh, this was the perspective from which she was writing Joni Mitchell, and from which uh, people in this country and uh, overseas um, responded electrically to that song. I dreamed I saw the bombers flying shotgun in the sky, turning into butterflies above our nation. And I reasoned to myself, well, golly, isn't that extraordinary that that was the overwhelming attitude in relation to warfare on the part of millions of young people in the world in which that song was born. And then I compared it to today where um, we have these, uh, this uh, not overwhelming, but this practical acquiescence to the use of drones and to what is sometimes called America's militarization and the perpetual uh, undeclared warfares in which our country has become involved. Please, it's not a political statement. <clears throat> My own views I've stated, but what is fascinating is that here you have millions and millions of young people responding in a <clears throat> very um, wrenching, gut-level, positive way to Joni Mitchell's lyric and the mystique or the, um, the perspective that the lyric embodies, that the bombers would turn to butterflies. This is uh, flower power. And yet here we um, 
so many people that I meet today are sort of dying to go into the CIA or they're dying to become operatives against um, whatever uh, enemy that they um, believe is there may well be. Is but nevertheless, uh, what a change! So many people I know are, you know, well, well I'm becoming an interpreter uh, in Arabic for such and such a defense organization, or my greatest dream, you know, is to do my duty, or I've got to give something back, or I want to become a first responder. And my point is not uh, the um, to in any way. Uh, um, diminish the idealism and the tremendous desire that people have to get involved in something bigger than themselves. But I am struck by the difference in the um, kind of uh, spirit. No, no, no. The difference in the content of the belonging. One was uh, where, you know, the what is now called iconic photograph of a, of a young girl placing a, a daisy in a, a bayonet uh, in a, a Kent State type um, or Pentagon demonstration against the Vietnam War, and uh, today uh, this uh, tremendous and seemingly unquestioned by a great many people, because the demonstrations against it are very modest and very moderate, very minor, against this kind of tremendous sense that people are doing a good thing if they become uh, military uh, operatives or involved in the military. And isn't that amazing, the change? Now, what does that say to you? What does it say that in just a few decades, the uh, cause-oriented idealism of a generation could become now the cause-oriented idealism uh, and yet with a uniform? What does that say about our lives? Now, think about this with me for just a minute. If you don't um, uh, put into ideology the change, in other words, if you don't say, well, this is bad compared to what I grew up with, or this is good compared to what I grew up with, both of which are probably true, by the way. There are some aspects of today's idealism that are far improved upon the uh, what you uh, had in the 60s or 70s or 80s or whenever it was. And on the other hand, there are aspects of it that are probably much diminished and very um, negative in relationship to that. But you'll find probably that the governing uh, image here is not so much what has changed, but that it has changed. And um, just think about your own life. I mean, think of the, the things that you embraced with great uh, sense of inspiration and ability in your teens or in your 20s, in your early 30s. The various causes, the various um, ideas about parenting, for example, or about relationships, or about women and men in marriage, or about career in uh, gender equity and equality, and uh, aspects of sexuality, and aspects of this, and aspects of politicization, and um, whatever the causes that you were in. Now, now just think about where, where it is today, and just look at not so much um, whether it has changed for the worse or for the better, I'm sure you can argue it both ways, but that it has changed to that extent. We were in a Walgreens uh, pharmacy not far from here, and the change in the demographic, in the uh, whole mood and feel culturally of the Walgreens on the highway where we just get our prescriptions filled compared to the, uh, say, a pharmacy when uh, um, either of us were growing up wherever we grew up in our own communities uh, as children is um, you you can't cut it with a knife. I mean, money can't buy it. You, you couldn't express the degree of change in any number of, of uh, situations to which you are um, uh, related in 
irresistibly when you go into the store. And uh, if you simply stop and say that it has changed that degree. And uh, the flower power thoughts of uh, Joni Mitchell in the Matthew Southern Comfort version of Woodstock uh, is so radical compared to where we are today. Now, let me carry this just a step further and go to the um, kind of the three marks of reality that you have that I embrace that I think are um, unarguably and therefore demonstrably um, apparent in the nature of existence. Now, the three marks of existence, now I could say I'm quoting from T.S. Eliot or I could say I'm quoting from Jack uh, Kerouac, but I'm probably quoting from uh, the East, uh, but with um, with a little bit of uh, all flesh is grass thrown in uh, or uh, a little bit of... Um, the Brahms Requiem, but more importantly, Isaiah, uh, Love Not the World, I, I could very much derive these three ideas from the New Testament without batting an eye, although they're usually associated with a kind of perception that we think of as coming out of Eastern thought, and I think they're absolutely on the money. And as I say, a good disenchanted uh, Hebrew prophet or Jesus Christ himself, I think, would have um, stated these kinds of things, especially John. But wherever they came from, I think they're unmistakable. And the three marks of reality, we could say, are suffering, transitoriness, and, and this is the hardest one to express, a lack of reality or substance, or you might call it an unreality. Suffering, transitoriness, and an odd and harder to express lack of reality or substance. Now think about this. Look at your own life, uh, and I say this very much with my own life in context. Loss, suffering. Is there anyone listening to this who would not agree? You know, we say, oh, well, so-and-so had a very hard life. I find that when people say that, just about everybody I know has had a hard life. I mean, in fact, everybody I know has had a hard life in respect to loss. The classic example, as we always say, but it's a good one, and it's in a very spiffy new edition, I think, uh, Blu-ray is Citizen Kane, where he simply loses everything, and finally, his life. And uh, the character of loss, loss of a, a, a great line in one of the later uh, Williamstown journals of James Gould Cousins, where he's... Um, laughing because someone in a, ideal, a biographical sketch, some very famous person, is described, Cousins is saying, as in uh, later life. His later life was marked by um, appalling, uh, 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 an appalling period of personal losses. His old age is marked by, by, uh, by tragic personal losses. And uh, Cousins says, and who's not, who, what older person isn't? <laughs> what person who's in their 70s and 80s? Their life is not marked by appalling losses. Um, is there anything at all unusual or noteworthy about the universal fact of loss? I don't think you're going to debate that, uh, and I think it's very worthwhile to say that. And we don't say it enough. And uh, I had a very funny experience the other day when I uh, was um, getting something done for someone, and I I, uh, I said, "Well, now this is something that that will go to our grandchildren." I think she she said, well, this will be something that, that will go to your grandchildren one day, won't it? And I said, yes, uh, after we die, uh, it, it will definitely go to our children slash grandchildren. And this 
person helping me in the store said, oh, don't say that. Please, I didn't mean that. I mean, what else did you mean, madam? Um, life is suffering. Life is transitory. Well, I've demonstrated that. I hope you, you feel it. Um, I was recently looking at a, a list of uh, some pictures of people in a scholarship program I was involved in when I was a very young undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill. And I was looking at the group. And I was also looking at a sorority photograph of uh, my sister-in-law with all her sorority sisters in the same era. <clears throat> and um, then we were looking at sort of the current incarnation of the same programs, and the same, not the sorority, but the same program at Chapel Hill. And I mean, everything about it is different, gender-wise, diversity-wise, uh, school background, quote, class, end of quote, everything about it uh, is different. Than it than it was, and I thought to myself, well, you know, transitory. Don't judge it. It's simply you wouldn't recognize yourself. Um, it's so much change. I felt I was looking at sort of like the the difference between colonial America and kind of uh, uh, the industrial, you know, the post industrial revolution after the Civil War, or sort of Warren G. Harding almost. I wanted to go all the way to Warren G. Harding because it looked that much. You know, in 40 years, things have changed. They feel like they've changed so much. This is probably what the people who'd fought in the uh, Revolutionary War felt if they survived till the Civil War, but even more so because of the technological rush. So we, no wonder that uh, the wisdom of life says that alles Fleisch ist Gras. No wonder that Brahms wrote that amazing piece of music uh, for it, um, that kind of deist requiem mass for Protestants that uh, Brahms uh, composed uh, with the requiem, the Deutsches Requiem. And um, all life is transitory. And finally, the third, about uh, there's an unreality to life. Now, Houston Smith, the religion uh, teacher uh, who of whom I'm a fan, and he's very much a Christian, by the way. Don't let anyone confuse you on that. Uh, he uh, wrote, I think, in his uh, prologue to Dwight Goddard's The Buddhist Bible, which meant so much to um, Jack Kerouac. Houston Smith uh, said that <clears throat> the uh, mark of existence that Goddard brings up in the documents he translates or brings forward for that really remarkable digest of Eastern works that affected Kerouac so greatly he says the hardest one to explain or to even get your handle around is the, 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 the notion that things have no reality. Well, uh, I feel very much at this point that I, I understand that. Uh, just at this point, that doesn't seem to me to be hard because I look at things and I say, well, there is a way in which all the life that I've led uh, and experiences I've had in the past do seem to lack reality. There is, or let me put it another way. They seem to lack substance. Or to put it another way, whether they lack reality in some ontological or metaphysical paradigm, I don't know, or philosophical sense, I don't know. But what I do know is that they lack enduring substance. That I can say. I look at the... Uh, the picture of a sorority at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill in the year 1969. And um, it, it is so distant from the life that one leads today, let alone in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the Greek system. <clears throat> it is so different, not to mention the fact that so many of these lovely young women then are dead that you, there is a sense in which it's lacking in substance it's, or enduring substance. And the fact that it doesn't have an enduring substance gives a sort of 
pokes holes in its reality. It's almost as if there was a reality there. But now that time has passed, uh, time has poked time and age, suffering and transitoriness, flux, to quote Heraclitus, uh, pre-Socratic brilliance. Someone said, oh, I, now I know why you like the pre-Socratics recently. I had borrowed a book on the pre-Socratic philosophers, and this fellow listened to a podcast, and he said, oh, now I understand why you gravitate towards the Eliatic monists or whatever it was. Uh, Life and transitoriness has poked so many holes in the reality that was in 1969 that, in a sense, it's as if it never actually was because it, it it's it's become so remote. Didn't um, Hegel say this uh, as a potential criticism of the Passion of Christ when he said? Uh, he said, well, uh, speaking of the death of Christ and the resurrection, I sometimes wonder whether we should uh, remember what the Schwabian peasant is supposed to have said. It's an old maxim in um, southwestern Germany. Well, said the Schwabian farmer to another, that particular thing happened so long ago, it's as if it never happened at all. Well, you may say, well, it still happened. <clears throat> well, um, did it? I mean, in other words, in light of today, did it happen? Or does it have enduring significance? I think that would be a better word. Does it have substance? Can you ground your life on it when its uh, transitoriness has shot or poked holes in its kind of, you know, Jesus said old wineskins and new wineskins? Is the old wineskin so full of holes now that the water that was in it no longer has meaning? Uh, uh, my friend Lloyd Fonville wrote very perceptively, I felt, about Star Wars recently, that the great virtue of the first three Star Wars movie that George Lucas um, had so much to do with. The, the mythic quality was that Lucas and others who created that movie um, brought um, the B-movies of their childhood into present reality as adults. In other words, they took their childhood memories of sci-fi movies and movies related to aliens and other planets and spaceships, and they they took them as adults in their adult young adult years, and they they brought these uh, old memories into the present adult reality, and that's why those first three movies are so powerful, whereas the next three and the second trilogy seem to be more uh, forced or seem to be uh, constrained or don't have that same uh, spontaneous sense of, of bringing into the present into actuality now what was a remembered thing. Well, that uh, really bespeaks this notion of uh, substantial reality uh, that you can be grounded on and be established in as opposed to um, a passing thing. Well, uh, I conclude now uh, by a poem, actually, uh, that I've not read before that I think is about as... Uh, as uh, pregnant as it can be and incisive from a very unusual source, although it won't be unusual to you uh, in, uh, in uh, those who've listened to the more recent podcasts about Galsworthy. I haven't read a poem of Galsworthy's and his poems are interesting. He didn't, he sort of tossed them aside and they were kind of published off the end uh, in the margins of his work and his wife collected them at the end and put them together although she left out what he had what some people consider his most important religious poem called a dream that he read at the uh, british embassy in washington i think in 1912 it's a very in a sense anti-christian no no i would say it's a contrary to christianity spiritual religious poem that is a little stronger than some of his other works and bespeaks a little bit of the mid-period galsworthy rather than the later kind of um odd uh, kind of religiosity of his later evolving. But whatever uh, is true in that poem, he got a lot of depth into some of his poems. And for an upper class or 
uh, I guess we would call upper class but not titled Englishman, out of his world to have developed, uh, to have heard, I should say, to have heard such words as these, it really is a great argument in favor of inspiration because we think of inspiration as coming to hippies and uh, odd ducks and uh, people who are off the margins and who are sort of loose cannons. And to find the degree of inspiration that uh, I believe we do find here in uh, this uh, rather appear, apparently buttoned-up, uh, class-written, apparently Englishman, bespeaks the power of inspiration. And he has a kind of Eliadic, a pre-Socratic uh, power in a poem. And I'm going to read uh, simply the uh, last verse of it. And his wife has, I think, importantly placed this poem as the concluding poem in her collection from 1936, entitled the Collected Poems of John Galsworthy, and she has uh, subtitled this uh, under a group of works, The Endless Dream. And this is uh, the concluding stanza in a three-stanza poem by Galsworthy entitled Amberley Wildbrooks. And we're talking here about what can we say in the light of the fact that uh, in New Testament focus and in Johannine focus and in Jesus Christ focus, as I see it, and also in uh, the focus of... Uh, of perceptiveness, we see that life is both uh, all three things, transitory, suffering, and lacking in a kind of grounded substance. What can we then say? Amberly Wildbrook's stanza three. Writes Galsworthy, Man is a dream waking for a day until the wild brooks of oblivion brim. Tis well his waking self should slip away and momentary dreaming comfort him. For so he learns, before the long sleep comes, that in himself revolves the starry scheme. In him the winters mute, the summer hums, just as it will be in the endless dream. Now, this is, um, what he's really saying is that reality is to be found let me put it this way in a non, um, don't put any baggage on this word. Reality is found in yourself. To quote an authority of mine, the hope is you. Carlyle said it. All sorts of people have said it. It's the wisdom of life in my view. It's not the entire wisdom of life, but nor was... Um, the uh, Athanasian Creed, the entire wisdom of life, else it would not have fallen apart uh, in the current uh, Christian um, diaspora in culture. In other words, we have to say that something went wrong in Denmark in uh, Christian theology because we wouldn't be in the, here's a how-to-do, here's a pretty mess, in a month or less, you know, Here's a state of things. To her life she clings. Uh, let's let uh, William Schwenk Gilbert say it for us. Um, here's a pretty mess. Here's a how to do. Here's a state of things. So obviously the Christianity we had embraced and held fast um, had problems in it. Otherwise we would not be in the position of extreme vociferousness, anger and malice and unbelievable litigiousness that is characteristic now in so many Christian circles whether it's through scandal or whether through bad feeling or through, through sudden flight and fall of water, my Lord, whatever it is, it's bad news. And so if that has a great truth, 
but was missing something, as the empirical life shows. Similarly, I would say that Galsworthy doesn't have the whole truth in Amberly Wildbrooks because he ended quite... I mean, the story of his death is really quite disturbing in that he, he was so anti his own death. He he fought it at such a such a deep level, and it was not even almost mentioned until it was way too late that he had an obvious brain tumor. I was talking to someone the other day, a doctor, and I said, you know, there's a this is, I, I suspect this is a precancerous growth, and I sort of said, oh my gosh, I'm telling the doctor his own business, but it's obviously that as a layman, uh, having seen other experiences, and uh, then I thought, well, you know, that's what I think, and similarly. Um, um, Galls, Gallsworthy, it was so clear that what he had, and yet uh, the doctors denied it until the very end, and that's what he did have. Um, now, let me read it again. It's not the whole truth. Other, otherwise, there would have been certain serenity in Denmark, but it's a truth that I was certainly missing, just as Galsworthy might be missing, you know, the great Ignaton, the Egyptian 1954 truth, Michael Wilding, the proto-hippie, God forgives everyone. Here it is again, Amberly Wildbrooks. Man is a dreamer, waking for a day, until the Wildbrooks of oblivion brim. Tis well his waking self should slip away. That's, by the way, the Heracleitean, life is flux, life is a river, view. Tis well his waking self should slip away, and momentary dreaming comfort him, because that's what you and I are all doing. We're involved in a tremendous amount of momentary dreaming in our heads, and then he concludes, Galsworthy does, For so man learns, before the long sleep comes, that in himself revolves the starry scheme. In him the winters mute, the summer hums, just as it will be in the endless dream. Well, I endorse that, although I don't claim it's the whole truth. But I do want to bring that to your attention as you look yourself upon the amazing demise of flower power in light of militarization and endless warfare, you remember those words that have completely gone by the boards. I dreamed I saw the bombers flying shotgun in the sky, turning into butterflies above our nation. Now, here's finally just a little bit of flower power that I think will give you a lift, because here is something that will never date, a song by... I think one of the great groups, but they only had one hit, maybe two, The Peanut Butter Conspiracy. Thank you very much.